Welcome back, everybody. Free Me TV, Free Me Podcast. This is Thomas Free Me, founder of www.cominghomecoalition.com. If you have not checked out the website yet, please do so and see all the things that um, are available to my subscribers and my members. Please check out my video on the membership tiers and see if, if a membership to my channel you know, um, is applicable to you in your life. So um, please make sure that you check all of that out. Today is another important discussion, and this discussion is brought to you by the F8 Foundation, Miss Cynthia Goldberg, um, which is a very good friend of mine. And she introduced me to Mr. Mr. Joseph Irizarry and just wanted me to have a discussion with him. Now, I've never spoken with this guy prior to this interview here. We just connected on Zoom and, and just started going at it. So this is just another special um, special conversation between two people who have a lot of similar experiences but come from two different worlds. So Mr. Irizarry is going to get into his background, some of his, his criminology, and um, how he became a, a gang leader at the age of 15 years old, instructing grown men at 30, 35 years old um, to do crimes. So we're going to get into all of that. We're going to get into how that forms and how that comes about. And then more importantly, we're going to get into how Mr. Irizarry overcame these struggles and walked away from that life, which is not a very easy life to walk away from. So he's going to give us the, the keys you know, to, to how that happened and what he's doing with his life now. So once again, thank you for tuning in. Please hit the like, subscribe, and enjoy the conversation. So um, I'm just meeting you for the first time. You and I have never had no connection before. Um, you know, I, I, uh, our connection is is through Cynthia. You know, and and yeah. Cynthia and I had 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 met up through um, a, you know, a couple groups or whatnot, and and she just liked how how I presented myself and how people would open up to me, and she had me reach out to a couple people that were having issues with their life, and um. And we just had discussions, you know, and I put them on my podcast or whatnot. But, you know, your name came up. And she told me that she, no would love to, she, she said that um, she would love to see us have a discussion just about, you know, uh, just what's going on and what, what you've experienced and what you are experiencing and will experience for a, a long time. So if you can just introduce yourself and, and let me know a little bit about you and then I'll do the same. Uh, yeah, no doubt. So uh, my name is Joseph, uh, last name Evazari. Um, I just completed 20 years on a second degree life sentence. So basically I'm on parole for the rest of my life. Um, I've been home about a little bit more than a year and a half. Just got the bracelet, the uh, ankle monitor taken off about a few months ago. You know, so it just gives me a different different uh, perspective on liberation or at least freedom. Um, <clears throat> you feel a little bit more free, no doubt. So a little bit of background about me. Um, originally from New York City, 
uh, the Bronx. And my family moved over here from New York about 87. And within the next year of moving over, I went straight to foster care. You know, uh, and then just grew up the rest of my life in foster care, became a state ward. My parents signed over uh, legal guardianship to the state and the state raised me, you know, through foster care, juvenile detention, and then from juvenile detention to uh, adult prison. And that's where I basically spent most of my life at, you know, uh, about, I want to say almost 30 years in total, you know, of my life uh, incarcerated and most of my life institutionalized, you know. So this is the first time I really got to enjoy freedom, you know, with a completely different perspective other than, you know, uh, the world owing me as, you know, most of us grow up believing when we're young that the world owes us, you know, something. Um, and at the same time, believing as we're young that, you know, we're untouchable, you know, but uh, as we get older, we mature and we realize that the world doesn't really owe us anything. You know, if anything, we just need to find our place and figure out how we could, you know, impact the world with our presence you know, as best as possible. And that's where I'm at today, you know, is uh, doing a lot of community work, you know, with um, the campaign to end life without parole and also working at inner city weightlifting where it's a nonprofit organization that intends to, uh, you know, change individuals' perspectives with where they grow up at and what they can become in life, you know, as far as like, you know, as a personal trainer. And, um, I'm also a mentor for the My Turn program that's uh, ran by Tufts University through Tisch College. It's like a prison initiative that uh, also works on reentry. You know, so I'm involved in a few things. That's a little bit about me right there. That's a blessing, man. So you, you, you know, what have you reflected upon your life all the way back to your childhood? You know, just like why, why were we making the decisions? You know, like, why were we just doing the things that we were doing? What was it that we needed as a child that we weren't getting? You know, um, just things of that nature, you know? Yeah, you know, I, I did a lot of reflection. So while in prison, I did um, the needs program, which uh, trains puppies to be service dogs, right? And I also did Project Youth, which is not as similar as Scared Straight, but it's, you know, we're dealing with at-risk youth that come in from high schools and stuff. And I'm able to talk to them about my crime, but more so I'm also able to talk to them about, you know, what were my thoughts as a teenager that led me on to, you know, becoming what society would determine as a criminal. And um, I did a lot of soul searching in that. So I could tell you about the first time I ever committed a crime. <clears throat> I was 13 years old. And I, I bring this up because this is what really spawned a lot of reflection. Um, at the age of 13, I was in foster care. I was already introduced. I was becoming introduced to juvenile custody. And it was this time that I committed the first crime right here in Dorchester. And it was in Phil's Corner. I was walking. And this was back in the 90s, you know, with young kids you know, how to carry knives a lot in, in the city of Boston. And I was walking and we was in the tunnel, me and my friend, actually a foster brother. And there was an older gentleman <clears throat> with money in his hand. It looked like a $50 bill. 
And I, w- I went to my friend and I said, yo, listen, let's go rob this dude. You know, but I'm just joking around. I'm not thinking nothing of it. And my friend says, I dare you to go rob him. Now, we've all been dead in our lives as kids. You know what I'm saying? And usually when you're dead, you're going to take that dip because we're not punks and we're not going to back down, especially if we're a boy. You know, in our mind is, I got to show up, you know? So um, I'm not thinking nothing of it. I said, all right, cool. I go down there, I pull out my knife, and I make my voice as deep as possible. I'm a 13-year-old little boy. I have no facial hair. You know, I'm very short. And I said, hey, you, give me your money. The guy, you know what I mean? Like, the guy's like six feet something, you know what I mean? And I'm like maybe five, three, you know? And he turns around, and I got a little white hoodie on. It doesn't really look menacing, but at the same time, you know, I'm a dark-skinned kid in Dorchester. And the guy turns around, sees me, and sees the knife in the skit. He gives me the money. But through a lot of reflection, I thought about that one moment when I said what I said. In my mind, I'm putting a deep voice, but at the same time, I'm laughing in my head because I'm like, yo, this dude's not going to take me serious. You know what I mean? And what I'm thinking is that this man's going to turn around, see how small I am, and that I'm a little boy, and said, beat it, kid. Get the hell out of here. And I would have just laughed and walked away. You know what I'm saying? And went up to my friend and said, man, the dude didn't want to give me his money. I literally had that in my mind that that was what was going to occur. But instead, this grown man, this adult, gave me the money. And in that moment, I took the money, I ran, I laughed. But then I turned back around and I said, oh, give me some more money, thinking that, yo, this dude's just going to give it all to me. And then he just runs away screaming. Now, for me as a kid, like most kids growing up, we think that is very humorous. So I laughed, I run, and he was screaming, running up the stairs. Um, so I was like, yo, let's go get him for some more money. So I'm figuring out we could tag team to get the guy because I proved myself in this day. Now my friend's gonna wanna go see if he could do it himself. Uh, so we go down there, but the guy left. But in the moment of when the guy gave me that cash, I sat there and I reflected and I pondered all about my emotions that I was feeling, what I was thinking, and then also what that did to my young mind was that the moment he gave me the money was in a moment of acknowledgement of me being a little badass, me being capable of protecting myself and fending for myself and taking care of myself. Albeit this was in a negative light, it was a moment of an exchange of power because I was a young child that grew up with trauma, you know, and for those that ever did restorative justice, you know, there's a terminology that says hurt people hurt people. You know what I'm saying? So I was a kid that, you know, growing up in New York and seeing violence in the neighborhood, uh, witnessing a murder that occurred or a shooting that occurred, you know, when I was about five years old. Uh, being told by my father that we don't talk to police because we don't tell them anything, you know? And so that was my first lesson of don't be a snitch, you know what I'm saying? Um, 
growing up seeing all those things and then also seeing my father be very abusive towards my mother and everybody else that he interacted with you know this was my concept of what it is to be a man so it was about being tough but at the same time i did not know how to truly internalize all the abuse that i went through you know through my own father's uh physical abuse towards me you know uh he spared nobody and then growing up in foster care with foster parents and their children also being abusive to me. So it was like, how does a child really deal with something like that if they're not taught how to speak out? You know what I'm saying? And so this moment where I robbed this man, this adult, and I was just a child, was a moment of an exchange of power. It was the moment where now I can challenge adults. And I had the ability to do so because they're threatened by me, uh, I could possess power if I have a weapon also, you know, so it just changed my mind. And from that moment is where I continue to hurt more people, you know, because I was hurt, you know, but I kept going through foster care, kept being abused. And in that is where I took my abuse out on the community, you know, because I was, I'm a Puerto Rican child. As a Puerto Rican, we have a culture where, you know, we respect our elders, but that respect only remained in the household. Outside the household, I was a grown man that was 13 years old, you know? So I think about that and I think about, you know, growing up and those were the moments that really changed my life around. You know, the fact that I was hurt as a child and I didn't know how to deal with it until, until I decided to take it out on the community. How, how, how far did the rabbit hole go after that? You know, how, how, how deep and dark did you get? Wow. So I went to juvenile custody. And then when I went into juvenile custody at 13, that's when I got affiliated with the gang. Um, and it just took off from there. Now, because um, as a Latino male, you know, family's big for us. I'm a first generation Puerto Rican from you know, uh, New York City, my whole family, uh, uh, my adult family, they were all born in Puerto Rico, you know, so they really have that tight-knit core of a family unit still part of them, and that was instilled in me. So being that I grew up in foster care, I kept moving around, and I didn't have no sense of family with no foster parents because of the amount of foster homes that I went into, Within the first like eight months of me getting into foster care, I went to like about 13 foster homes within mm -hmm. eight months. That is traumatizing to a child. There's no stability there. There's no consistency. So when I was 13 years old, becoming a gang member was just logical. That was only a reasonable thing to do because now I'm affiliated and wherever I go, whatever foster home I go into, and if I commit another crime and get locked up, my gang is going to be there, which is my other family, you know? So, um, you know, it was just a no-brainer as a child, you know, that me being a gang member was just the best decision for me. And as I did that is where I committed more crime. I started hurting more people because now it was encouraged by the gang. Like, yo, that's the cool thing to do is hurt people. And so I did that. And as I did that, I got more accolades. And, you know, in that time, you know, it was called stripes. You know, you get your stripes up. You know, uh, you get recognized more. People know that 
you're a badass or wherever you go, if your name is known, the less you the less you have to prove yourself. You know, and um that's how it went for me, you know, and I just kept hurting people to the point that I became gang leader everywhere I went, you know. So I, I would say that the rabbit hole got real deep uh in light of violence, you know, uh I was quick for it. You know, I became to love it at the same time. And that became more or less my addiction, you know, because it was my outlet of pain. That's what I was going to ask you is, is, is what was the addiction, the love for it was, was, but you, you answered that. So, I mean, we're, we're similar, man. I mean, you know, I, I didn't grow up in, in inner city, you know, I didn't see, you know, the, the things that you saw, but I grew up in a, in a home with, uh, a machoistic father, a very handsome man, yeah. you know, a womanizer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, uh, and just, just, uh, you know, a, a complete egoist, you know, everything was, was when he wanted it and how he wanted it. And, and as a child, you know, I have an older brother and my brother is the spitting image of my father, but I wasn't, mm-hmm. I was always different as a kid. You know, I wasn't so quick to, to be, angry and I was just more reclusive and quiet and and thoughtful about things and I asked a million questions you know and 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 my family just wasn't like that you know and they didn't understand me and I just wasn't mechanically inclined I just couldn't do the things that my father and my brother could do you know what I mean and and they would just uh, ridicule me and just tell me you know my father would tell me things like you know, the best part of me ran down my mother's leg, you know, when I would mess up or I couldn't figure things out, you know, he would tell me you're not from my genes, just things like this as a small child, you know? Yeah. So, you know, he, it was a broken home and, and, and there was a lot of violence between him and my mother to the point that he ended up going to prison and then um, he remarried and it just never clicked for me. You know, just things never clicked. And, and, and like you, 12 years old, you know, our bus stop was out in front of the house. And I remember these, these were my first crimes. You know, there was a kid that was that I went to school with that had all of the, the, um, the Nintendo games and all the little uh, devices that went with Nintendo and all of that. And I just had the one little two little games and I was just mm-hmm. tired of playing these games over and over again, you know, so this is where it started at, you know, envy and, and jealousy, you know, and yeah, and, and I figured out, you know, that I could go to my bus stop and hide in this bush and wait for my father to leave. And he went to work, the bus took off and then I went to the kid's house. Right. So when I go to the kid's house, my plan is. I'm just going to knock on the door because the mother knows me. And if, if somebody comes to the door, I'll just be like, you know, is, is Matt home? And no, he went to school. Oh, okay. You know, I'm sick or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And, and that's it. But nobody answered the door. So I go around to the back and the sliding glass door is open. So I, bam, I go in the house and I get all his stuff. Pop, 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 pop. You know, throw it all in his pillowcase. And I go back to the house, man, and I'm in la-la land. I'm playing all these games with all these devices and stuff, you know? So now I go to school the next day with the kid, and the kid is mad, you know? And he's telling me, he's like, man, somebody broke into my house and took all my stuff. 
And I remember just sitting in my mind like, yeah, sucker, you know, I was playing, you you know, just no, <laughs> no feeling bad or whatever. You know, like you say, yeah. it was just that yeah. power. I went and did what I wanted to do and I accomplished my goals, which, you know, my family has never told me I've done before. So it was a feeling of finally planning something and it coming to plan and me getting rewarded for that. And that yeah. thirst didn't stop there. You know what I mean? So now it's like, dang, what else can I get? So I started doing this every day. You know what I'm saying? For weeks. Mm -hmm. And I was so meticulous with it. Like they had no idea where this person was, who he was. I ended up doing, I think, like 18 houses, you know, mm -hmm. and I got all kinds of stuff in my room. Swords, guns, all of this crap. And I got myself in trouble. And how I ended up yeah. getting in trouble was the last house I go into, I go in and I steal and I go because now I'm going straight to the parents room. That's where all the good stuff's at. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. All the shiny, yeah. glimmery stuff. So I'm going straight to the parents' room, and I open up this big cabinet, and there's a big roll of money, cash. Never seen that much cash, and it scared me. You know what I'm saying? So now I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, because, again, I was a thoughtful-ass kid, man. So now I'm sitting there thinking, if I take half this, the kids are going to get blamed for taking it because a thief is going to take the whole money. You know what I'm saying? So... I'm only going to take half, but then I'm like, no, you know what? Um, I took the whole thing. So I didn't even go nowhere else in the house. Bam, I jet back. It's my homeboy's birthday. Kid, a kid that he's the only one that knew what I was doing. Right. It's his uh. birthday. So at this time we can go back to, I went back to the house. You could still call the school and have kids called out of the classroom. So bam, I call psychology. I'm only, I'm only 12 years old. You know what I mean? So I call psychology and I'm telling him, like, listen, you know, I'm, I'm Rich's, you know, brother-in-law. There's been a death in the family. I need to speak with Richard. So they call uh. him down. So now I tell him, listen, what period y'all in? He's like second period. So I said, OK, I'm going to come down in a cab and pick you up. Now I go to the school, pick this kid up in a cab. He's out front. Now, two, two 12 year old, 13, he's 13. We go to the mall, little local mall. But to me, it's like we went out of state. You know what I'm saying? So we yeah. go to we go to this little local ass mall and me and him, I gave him two grand. There was there was five thousand dollars. So I just gave him two grand. Bam, here you go. Happy birthday. Right. All hundreds. I can't even give the cabbie no money. I have to give him a hundred, which, of course, I, I found out later through a red flag on him. You know what I'm mm. saying? But we go into the mall, man. I bought man. Nike Air Max just came out, man. I bought the Air Max. I'm buying jeans, suits and and, and the jeans, shorts, and jackets, and the new Walkmans. And, man, I went to school the next day like a dang millionaire, boy, you know? Certainly, certainly. Third period, school resource officer calls me down. He say, man, there's some kids coming to me saying they ain't never seen you dressed like this, you know? Where'd you get all of these clothes from? So I'm like, man, you know, it's my birthday and blah, blah, blah. He's like, well, he said, let me tell you like this. He said, there's been a lot of burglaries in the area. And he said, on those days, you're absent from school. And now you got all these kids talking about, you know, your clothes and stuff. So I'm just letting you know your father's on his way here. And when he said that, oh, man, that was. But that's exactly it, you know, for me. And, and I've, I've spent my whole life trying to figure out 
like how the, the meticulousness of it and the thoughtfulness of it at 12 years old, this just wasn't me just, just going out and just ran it. This was me putting thought into these crimes. No doubt. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and not wanting to get caught, knowing about my fingerprints and while I'm in the house, you know what I mean? Knowing when I go into a house and there's dogs in there, you know, how to, how to handle with the dogs and just, and it's, it's just crazy. But that, like you said, gave me such an empowerment. It, it made me feel like I was 10 times smarter than the, than the law, you know, but it's, it's not the police. It's not the law. The law is easy to fool. You're not going to fool life though. And it took me many, many, many years, many years, torturous, torturous years to understand I'm trying to fool life and life's way smarter than I am. You know what I mean? And that's, that's when, when things just click for me, man. Yeah. You know, I never got involved in gangs. I knew gangs as a small kid. I knew gangs wasn't, wasn't my, my life. I knew gangs wasn't, wasn't what I was part of. And I knew that I would be fake in a gang. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and I never got into gangs or anything of that nature. But I just led a, a chaotic life. I was the first one to people were calling me. Listen, we got a problem with what's his name over here. OK, no problem. Let me suit up and I'll go handle that. You won't have no more problems with him. And once I demonstrated that I was that type of person, I was just used. You know, and the whole time I'm just seeking for friendship. I'm really just looking for somebody just to understand me. Yeah, to bond with and be my true friend. And when I got into the hood, I thought all of these people were my friends. And then all of these people that I grew up with since 13, 14 years old, I turned 29. You know, they get caught with drugs. They bring me into their conspiracy. You know, they all rat testify against me. Friends that I've known since 13, 14 years old. Yeah. Up in the stand just pointing at me and lying. That was the point. That's what hurt me the most is that you're trying to give me life. Yeah. You know. So that's my story, man. I went and I did um, I did 13 years in the feds. I come home. I couldn't find no job. Nobody wanted to hire me, but these day labor crap, you know? Yeah. And, um, I, like you say, I hadn't, I have never had a job. I have no work experience. I have no, no experience, no social experience. All I know is survival. That's all I know. Even today, right now, I'm still in survival mode, still trying to plan on how to just get through today going into tomorrow. Mm. Tomorrow. I don't even, I don't, I don't even have plans for tomorrow. I just know that tomorrow my day is is swamped. You know what I'm saying? And I'll deal with it when I get up in yeah. the morning. So it's it's this type of lifestyle that that we get into. You know? What are you gonna do, man? Gotta keep trucking. You know what I mean? Gotta keep moving. You know, a lot a lot of what I do now is uh I'm working on uh, college degree uh, through liberal arts at Bunker Hill Community College. You know, when I was locked up, I took advantage of the fact that um, Tufts University was providing uh, a prison initiative program, you know, with college behind bars. You know, and uh, I started working on, you know, getting some college credits under my belt. And coming home, it was the smartest thing for me to do was just to jump right back into college. You know what I mean? And not waste no time. You know, because I, I see, I understood 
while locked up, you know, because you see people coming in and out. You know, when you do a long time, you see people coming in and out, you know. And I did 20 years. So I seen people come in and out. And it was always the same old story that they couldn't find a job. It's really hard out here, you know, especially when you have the uh, label of being a felon. You know, nobody wants to hire you. As soon as they find out you got that in this background, they're like, man, I don't care how nice you are. I'm not taking a chance. You know what I mean? Why don't you build up your resume first? But it's like, how the hell am I going to build up my resume if nobody's trying to give me a damn chance? You know what I mean? So it just doesn't make no sense. It's kind of productive. You know, society just works against you after you pay your debt. You know what I mean? But um, so, so it was just a no-brainer for me to just go ahead and continue with college you know, with uh, a support system that was already in place. You know, Tufts University had created the first uh, college reentry program in the country, you know, and I was a part of the first uh, pilot program. And now we're in the second second uh, phase of it. And now I'm the mentor for this pilot program, you know, that's definitely going to be staying here in the long term. And um, I just saw it as a no-brainer, like, you know what, I can't get a job. It took me, when I first came home, I was fortunate that my brother-in-law had his own business, but um, situations just didn't work out, so I had to leave. And now I found myself in Boston after leaving Brockton, and coming to Boston, it was just hard. You know, nobody wants to hire you. So I got with a temp agency, but even the temp agency wasn't consistent with work. You know, um, so I, I would just do a lot of just, hanging around and just going to the gym, you know, just to keep myself busy and focused and participating in the My Turn College reentry program just so I could, you know, continue thinking, you know, and staying ahead and keeping my day busy. If I didn't have those things, man, I'll have so much idle time on my hand that it would just, you know, more than likely somebody's going to do something, you know, that's going to be you know, antisocial behavior or criminal thinking behavior, you know, and I stayed focused. I didn't want that for myself, you know. I already wasted too much of my life, you know, incarcerated and institutionalized. And this is more or less the first time since all my life, you know, and I'm 40 plus years old that I'm like, I'm really free and I'm really living, you mm. know. I could go buy fruit when I want to buy fruit. You know, I go to concerts, I go to comedy shows. You know, I go out to eat at nice restaurants, you know. I'm finally living, and I've never lived before. You know tell what me, I mean? Tell me about that switch. When did that switch occur for you? Like, you're, you're okay, so you're in prison, right? And you got, you got life. You had life. Yeah. With the possibility of parole. Yeah. Okay. So you got life. You're going into prison with life. You're in gangs. You've been putting in work, right? So how, tell me how that works for these kids that want to get out of these gangs, but really don't know how to, because I've, I've ran across a couple kids that would, would beg me to help them get out of these gangs, but they just didn't know how to, you know? So. I mean, it's, it's a hard transition, honestly, right? Because that becomes your life. You know, I I was a, I was a gang member since I was like 13 years old and then became like a gang leader since I was 15. You know what I mean? It's hard because you embody that. That becomes you. You know what I'm saying? And everything that you do every day is regarding the gang life perspective. You know, you only see life through that lens. 
as I got older, you know, science has just now recognized, I mean, for criminal behavior, that individual brains do not mature at least until the age of 25 or 26. You know, I mean, I, I say it's a little bit later, you know, because, you know, science, science is saying that, uh, you know, that's just on average. I say that, all right, now let's, let's look at trauma. Let's look at, you know, nicotine use at a, at a young age. Let's look mm-hmm. at drug use at a young age, alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And let me go again ahead and remind you, let's look at trauma. You know what I mean? Trauma hinders an individual's growth emotionally in such a way that by the time you're 25, 26, you're still dealing with so much shit that you're not mature yet. You know what I mean? And um, I, I say for me, man, it didn't, I didn't really start to appreciate consequence at least until I was 28, 29. You know what I mean? That's when I started to appreciate consequences. Before that, I didn't care about going to the hole or hitting the CO or fighting with anybody. You know what I mean? Or making a knife in prison or whatever. It didn't matter to me. It was like, yo, this is just the, what we do and this is the life, you know? And, uh, oh, we go to the hole. All right, I got caught. You know, the whole cat and mouse game. You know what I'm saying? It was just a game, literally. That was the thought process. And um, it wasn't until, like, I was laced. 28, 29, where I was like, I need to chill out. You know, I got a son that's out there. You know, um, my family just got back into my life when I got convicted for my murder conviction. And um, I still didn't appreciate it completely because I was still a gang member. I was still affiliated. And I was like, you know what? Y'all wasn't in my life, my whole life, when I was going through hard times. I really don't need you. I appreciate that you're here, but I don't need you. You know, uh, so it didn't matter to me to really appreciate what that meant to me or what it means to me now. You know, um, going through the gang and finally just realizing like, yo, I got people out there that expect more of me. You know, and I was always an intelligent person. I was always reading and, you know, at age 15, I became a gang leader. And I'm telling grown men what to do when I'm 15 years old, telling the 25, 30 year old man that he can't conduct himself that way because that's not appropriate, you know what I mean? Like, that is just crazy. No 15-year-old kid should be doing that, you know? And um, I was one of those persons that was doing it. So growing up and deciding to, you know, step out of the gang was really, it was not overnight. It was it was something that I had to, you know, work myself up to for at least a couple of years to really get it in my head and say, you know what, this is what I really need for myself in order to be free and live my life. For me, I, it took some years. And when let me, let me ask you right there. In, let me, let me ask yeah. you right there. Right. What was it that was pulling you? Because you've lived a dark, evil life. What was, what was it that was pulling you from that? I mean, this is like you say, this is all you've known. This is, this is all you've known to eat to survive this is your comfort this is what has has kept you alive but you knew somewhere what was that that was telling you that you like you say in order to truly be free you had to get away from that what was that yeah well you know it was the more i read you know the more i read i spent two time two tours in ddu solitary confinement right and um while i was in solitary confinement for about two years both times 
I was doing a lot of reading. And I'm reading all these things, seeing that people are living different lives than myself. And I'm like, yo, how the hell is this even a reality? You know, because the way I grew up, that's not real, you know? <clears throat> reading magazines, and there was one day where I read a magazine and it was an 18-year-old kid in a Maybach. And he was being driven around and he was the youngest CEO at the time. And I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, that could be me. And yet here it is, I wasted my life. Well, what I thought was my life because of circumstances, because of trauma that kept me in the box. But I could actually be a CEO just like this 18 year old kid. And I'm like, you know what, man, things gotta be different. So just seeing people live different lives, appreciate lives, happy relationships, happy family. I wanted to know what that was like for myself. And in order for me to have that, I understood that I needed to do a lot of uh, soul searching. You know what I mean? I had to look into me and see what was wrong and was I really messed up, you know? And was my way of looking at life warped? And once I started to do that and I started to realize that it was, and then I also started to realize that guys that lived my lifestyle they were better than me and how they thought. And I'm like, yo, how does it that you think like that? You know, because to me it was, I wasn't manly enough, you know, but then I realized like, yo, they just had a better upbringing. They didn't deal with that much trauma. Granted, they deal with societal trauma, but not like real personal in your heart trauma, you know? And um, that's when I had to, you know, just really just wake myself up and then say, you know what, man, despite what I went through, I could be better. And I did read a book uh, a Hindu, on Hindu philosophy. And mm -hmm. when I read that book on Hindu philosophy, and it was just basically just telling me that it's okay for me to be the way that I am, but I have to accept those things. And it was the accepting process, you know, that allowed me to come to peace with myself, you know, a sense of forgiveness, self-forgiveness, you know, that I was able to actually mature and grow when I started to forgive myself and what I went through, you know, not so much as just forgiving the people, but forgiving myself for the inability to have my own power at a young age, because it's okay for a kid to not be able to protect himself because that's not his job. You know what I mean? But as a young kid growing up, we're told to be a man, to toughen up. Five years old, why the fuck you crying? Be a man, stop crying. I'm five years old. I'm supposed to cry. You know what I'm saying? No little five-year-old is supposed to know how to be a man. So it's a matter of forgiving yourself. You know what I mean? And when I started to do that is when I really started to grow and say, yeah, you know what? I don't need the game. You know, there was, um, there was a thing that I read it was a, a, a FBI agent had wrote a, a behavioral analysis on gang members. And he has something, he has said something equivalent to the point that is like, you know, most gangs, specifically the gang that I was a part of, he was like, you know, they are just like, um, it was the book that I had read and I hope that you could help me remember it. It had to do with some kids that were in a plane and then the plane crashed on the island and they were there on the island all the adults passed away and they had a friend for themselves and yeah. in that that's um yeah, isn't that um in that 1984 uh no 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 it's not 1984 no that's um i know exactly what you're talking about man 
I know what you're talking about. What the hell is the name of that yeah, movie? They were man? All kids. Yeah, they were the all fly kids. Is it the not not it, the fly? Is it the fly? Something like that. It's something like that, man. Yes, something like that. Children of the fly, something to that point. But nonetheless, it was a real good book, right? And when the, when I read that from behavioral analyst, right, I was like, yo, let me read that book again to get a good grasp. And it seems like, you know, in that concept. A lot of us that grew up in the inner city or just period anywhere, and we don't have parents in our life, you know, or even if the parents are there, but they're really not there, you know, as children, we develop a hierarchy of who's going to be the adult amongst the kids, you know, and how we structure that, you know. So when I finally started to mature was when I really started to become my own adult to know myself and feel comfortable with myself to make appropriate decisions that actually respect consequences. You know, if I do this, this is liable to happen. So is it worth it doing it? You know, whereas when I was younger, it didn't even care. I understood that if I do that, uh, yeah, I'll go to the whole, I'll go to solitary confinement, but the respect amongst my peers is going to be there when I come out in a couple of years. You know sure, you're going to get more stripes. That's, yeah, you know, so growing up in the game and then learning that the game was just always going to be in the same state of mind, uh, a static reality, so to speak, you know, that it wasn't going to progress, that it wasn't going to move forward. You know, studying gang history, you realize that most gangs were formed because of, you know, the racist structures that exist in America. You know, they were formed to protect communities against that, you know. But they changed themselves and they they transformed into what we understand gangs to be today. And for myself, I didn't see that for me anymore, you know. And it was, I need to get out of this. But because I had the respect that I had, because I put in the amount of work in the gang, um, the gang respected my decision, you know, mm-hmm. to step out. It was like, you know what? you're on a positive path, go ahead and live that positive path. And in that, it was a hard transition as well because although I stepped out of the gang, it was some moments, man, I want to fuck this shit up out of somebody. I want to just punch them in the face. You know, and the gang would always tell me, listen, anytime you got a problem, just let us know, we'll handle it because we want you to stay on the positive path. That was still a little taste of power of what I could do because the gang has still offered that point of violence that I've lived my whole life with, that I love, that I was addicted to. And just the idea that I could just go to them and say, yo, I don't like this dude. This dude's giving me a little problem. Can you guys go ahead and handle it? They would have done it for me. But I know that that was the rabbit hole. The moment I did that was the moment that I wasn't going to be sincere about my transformation. And that I could easily just go right back in and become a gang leader all over again. So I had to be more honest with myself and say, despite what I feel, despite the desire I have for violence every once in a while, I can't walk down that path because I understand that there's so much more at stake. And I love living my life now, being able to go out to dinners, being able to go to the gym and train clients being able to go to a concert if I want to go to a concert or celebrate my son's 
uh, birthday parties. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I have a son right now. He's performing. Uh, he wants to be a singer, and Neo is already supporting and recognizing him. It's like, I want to see him shine. Like, come no, on. No what, what good is it going to be me locked up again and then telling everybody, oh, yeah, that's my son. He's singing with Neo, but I'm supposed to be right there beside him yeah. on stage or in the cut somewhere, you know, and just cheering him on. Like, that's living life. Anything else, that's a waste of time, you know, and I mean, it's a hard transition leaving the gang life. It really is, but you have to have it in your heart. You have to have your heart and your mind match each other. You know, there was something that I read in uh, the Jewish Bible, and it said, basically, you know, believing in God is not a mental process. Believing in God is not a heart process. You have to have them both together. If you don't have them both together, you're not really a true believer because you're going to have it in your head, but your heart is going to put you somewhere else. You can have it in your heart, but your mind is going to convince you that you could get away with it right now. You know what I mean? As long as you pray and ask for forgiveness later. So you got to have them both together. And that's what I feel about my own personal life is where I'm at, my heart and my mind have to be together. And I love where I'm at and I appreciate where I'm at. You know what I mean? There's no turning back for me. You know, if anything, if I see my gang today, it's what are you doing with yourself? And how can I help you get your life together? You know what I'm Amen. saying? Because now I have a little bit of the ability to do so, you know? The power is still there. It's just, it's just, you know, that's that's what makes Star Wars so great. You know, the 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 dark side and the light side, you know, and both have the, yeah. the equal power once you understand how to use it for good or for bad. It's the power Sorry. is power. You know, yes. power isn't good or bad. It's just how the person applies it. You know, yeah, and, and that's that's it. Everything that you just said, you know, for me, I, I look at I look at it that, you know, I'm I'm an extension of God. I am God here in the physical form, representing him the best that I know how to do, you know. And yeah. and when I started thinking that way. Instead of God being an outside entity that I pray to and all of these things, because in my mind, and not everybody's the same, but in my mind, when that was there, I felt like I could hide things from God. You know what I mean? No, because he's an, he's an outside entity, you know, and I can hide those little deep, dark secrets in my head. But it wasn't until I really started understanding that I am God. It tells you right there in, mm -hmm. in every, in every, you know, biblical text, you are made Sorry. in the likeness. Sorry an image of God. If you take a glass and Sorry. you make another thing in the likeness and image of that original glass, then you have another glass. And that other glass is mm -hmm. expected to be performed, you know, expected to perform in the same manner as the original cast. You see what I'm saying? So Sorry. it's it for me, it just boils down to now just purity of thought, right? And, and we all have all kinds of thoughts, good and bad. We can't control our thoughts, but what we can do is surround our thoughts with a filter. And you have to make that filter absolute truth. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And when you make that filter absolute truth, then what happens, at least for me, is I stop looking at other people as, as their faults. And I started seeing other people's faults in me to the point to where I just start... Mm -hmm. 
I, whatever it is, when I see somebody doing something that I don't like, the first thing I ask is, is, is this possible within me? You know what I mean? Am no I doubt. capable of being this here? You know, and, and I'm telling you, man, that changed everything. That changed yeah. everything and how I made my decisions to the point to where I've got it so fine too now, dog, that when I go into a store, right? And, and if I know that somebody's behind me and I don't hold the door for the person, you know, I just, I'll, I'll see out of the corner of my eye, I know somebody's behind me and I'll just let the door shut. Yeah. I'll, think, I'll reflect on that right there and be like, that, that, sh- that wasn't cool. You know, I knew that somebody was behind yeah. me. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I knew that somebody was behind me. You know, and it's the same thing. If, if I see that somebody needs help and I walk past that person and I tell myself this person needs help and I keep going, I reflect <sighs> on the back of the day. Like God gave me an Church. opportunity to help somebody and I walked Definitely. right past it and I saw it. Yeah. You know what I mean? But because I was in a rush to, to really do nothing, you know what I mean? But in my mind, I'm telling myself and I'm in, I'm in a rush to do nothing. I justified and lied to myself essentially why I couldn't stop and help this person. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what I mean about absolute truth. That's, that's what, that's what switched me for me. It was my daughter. It was just one day coming back from visitation, her clawing at me because I left my daughter at six months old. I had no part in raising my daughter, you know? And, and one day she just, she just clawing at my clothes, man. And she's like, I want to stay with my daddy. I don't want to go. And I had to, (laughs) I had to grab my daughter's arms and rip her away from me, my own flesh and blood. I had to send her away from me because of the choices that I made in life. You know what I'm saying? This is my only flesh and blood, dog. And you had no idea since I was a little boy, I wanted my flesh and blood so I can teach them differently. And I, and I put them in the same mannerism as, as what I was raised in, you know, and, and it shows now she's 17 now and it shows, you know, and for me, I went back to my cell that day. I threw the towel up over the, over the door and man, I let myself fucking have it. You know what I mean? Just, just hitting myself in the chest, just trying to hurt myself, trying to beat myself because of the pain that I felt about the decisions. I'm looking around. I'm like, look at you, man. You, you lie to yourself. You tell yourself that you're a good dude, but yet you lie to people you know what I mean? You manipulate people. You, you make all of these excuses. Everybody told on you. The prosecutor did this. All of these excuses. Yeah. You know what I mean? But at the end of the day, I made the choices and I knew the choices I was making. You know, I would lie to myself when I'm dealing dope and, and I get pulled over with a brick, of, a brick of cocaine in the car. Right. And miraculously, I, I make it through this traffic stop. Right. And I, and, I, and, I, and I lied to myself and say that was God. God's looking out for me. God's got mm. my back because he knows I got yeah. good intentions as I'm going yeah. to, to, to sell cocaine to people. Yeah. I was like, come on, man. Stop it, man. Stop lying to yourself. You're a piece of shit. And if you don't like no, it, yeah. if you don't like it, change it. And that's mm-hmm. what I did. I stopped reading fiction. I stopped getting out of all these fiction books. Right. And I started reading Lord of the Flies is what you was talking about. Yeah, that's the joint right there. But he got Lord of the flies, but that's deep, too, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's it deep. Is, it is. but one of the first books that I really that I really got a hold of was 48 Laws of Power. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And 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 yeah. and I put myself in every one of those laws, you know, and, and asked myself, like, 
you know, is, have I done this? Is, is this me? It, it just, it's just self-growth, but it's purity of thought. Yeah. And this is what I tell people, just, just what you said. And it's amazing how when we make transitions in life, all the stories are kind of the same. And that's, that's the truth. That's mm. God's truth. That's God's truth. Letting people know, like, it's the same. All you have to do is do it. You know, but once I started having purity of thought, everything changed for me, man. It just changed for me. Now I couldn't, I couldn't commit a crime if I wanted to. Like you say, man, I got connections. I got dudes that tell me, listen, if you ever need anything, just come holler at me. But the bottom line is, partner, I will never sell drugs again. Never. And it's not because I don't want to go back to prison. I will go back to prison if I'm put in the right circumstance, just like anybody would. You know what I mean? I have that in me. There's no question. But the, the bottom line yeah. is I will never sell drugs again because I see the, 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 the detriment that I, I, I was part of. You know what I mean? I see what families go through when their sons and daughters are hooked on drugs and, the, and the, the, yeah. just the, the constant chaotic negativity that and I'm not being part of that no more. That's not me. I don't yeah. want to be I don't want to spread my I don't want my legacy to be that I, I was a detriment to humanity in any kind of way. And, and I so, know that it's bad and I don't want anything to do with bad. So. It just. Yeah, no, yeah I feel the same way. You know, one, one thing that struck me about what you was just talking about by right now is um, <clears throat> I'm big on the Hindu philosophy, but also what I've come to learn as far as my understanding of sin, like. I'm not your common believer, but at the same time, <clears throat> I'm a person that if I do something and it disagrees with me, that is my sin. You know, I would not do that again. You know, and it's like how you said, you know, about holding the door for somebody, you know, that person's right behind you. Like I hold the door for everybody. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm, I'm there to help people, but at the same time, I'm not naive of individuals that try to portray themselves to be a victim of society in such a way where, they're a panhandler. Like, I'm not going to help you because I know what your intentions are. It's just to get money so you can get high. But I will feed you. I'll definitely feed you. You know what I'm saying? If you're asking for food and you're hungry, I got you all day. You know, but it's like, I'm a person where if I do something and it does not agree with me, I would never do it again. You know, and I'm at a point now where there's no turning back as far as like, oh, yeah, let me go ahead and commit this crime just so I could get by on this situation. It's a slippery slope. Once you taste it, you're going to do it again. And you're going to do it again because you made the excuse in your thought, like, you know, like how you said, God knows that I have good intentions. You know what I mean? But the reality is, is nah, man, you're God. Like you said, you're God. You know, you're going to play yourself and you're going to judge yourself and you're going to convict yourself. You know what I mean? That's just the way life is. You know what I mean? Uh, you can only get away with it for so long, you know, especially if you're a truly conscious being. You know, if you're a conscious being, you're truly human. And in that aspect, you're going to judge yourself, you know, and you're going to be convicted again. You know, but, um, yeah, that's how it is for me, man. Sin, sin is I don't commit an act that does not agree with me, you know. And if I commit it, then woe unto me. You know, I deserve it. You know what I'm saying? But if, if I'm wise enough to do something and correct my mistake, then that, that's a kudos for me. Whatever happens after that, as long as I corrected my mistake and I'm happy with myself, then that's all that matters. You know what I mean? 
But yeah, and it is Lord of the Flies. <laughs> That's yeah, crazy. yeah. No, you're spot on. And, and for me, it took me years to, I'm, I'm Eastern philosophized as well. You know what I'm saying? So it took me yeah. many years to, to understand, like, when the Bible speaks about being born into sin, what does that mean? And, and, yeah. and for me, my philosophy evolved into the fact that being born into sin is the flesh. We're born into materialism. And our eyes can only see the physical, but that doesn't mean that's all that exists. And it takes many years yeah. and experiences in life to understand that there's more to them what the, the eyes can see, you know, but growing up in that materialistic life, that's all we see is the physical. So being mm -hmm. born into sin, being born into that flesh, everything is of flesh value, of material value. And we're thinking yeah. egotistically. Right. We want all of these fleshly things, these materialistic things. But dudes like you that got to your level, dudes like me that got to that level and had all of these these things that we desired taken away from us. Right. Just completely stripped away from us. It, 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 it makes you think like the material stuff doesn't even matter. You know what I mean? It, it don't matter. It's, it's, it comes and it goes. And, and all it does mm -hmm. is, is distract you from you being your best self, you know, Definitely. and that's a lot. Of, and that's the agenda of the government is to keep us distracted with all of these things, because we're, we're like raccoons. We see shiny things and we just want them. You know what I mean? Because yeah. society make deems it like if we don't have big gold chains, we're not important. If we're not wearing top label clothes, you know what I mean? We're not clean. You know, we're, yeah. we're poor and poor is bad and it's disgusting and all of this. This is what society is made to believe, you know, same with us, us returning citizens. We're made mm -hmm. to believe that we are are criminal people. But I like what you said. And, and I wanted to reflect on that was. I had to do the same thing again. It's just such a linear path. I started to understand, like, OK, I've been home four years now and these people like. And, I, and I've talked to executives. I, I had an executive um, apprenticeship job, right? These people like love me. And they're like, man, we can't wait to get you in here and you're going to do some big things. But as can you pass a background check? You know what I mean? And I just say, you'll just have to run it and see, man, you know? And, and I never heard from the people again. Never even got a call. Yeah. And from that point on, I was like, you know what? Just like you said, homie, my past is so negative, I have nothing to counterbalance that. There's nothing else to talk about. When people ask me, well, what's your work experience? I have nothing to counter that with. You know what I mean? When they tell you, well, how come you haven't had a job in 15, 20 years? There's nothing on the books. I have nothing to counter that. So like you said, I said, the only way that I'm going to build credibility for myself is to do it. I went and I created my foundation. You know what I mean? I created a foundation. My foundation deals with incarcerated families, you know, so if, if an individual is going to prison or he's coming home, I can, I can help these families adjust because people don't know how to deal with us. People have no freaking clue what we've been through. You know what I mean? People want to come home and throw us big parties yeah. after we've been gone for 15 years, man. We don't want no parties. We just want to come home yeah. and just and decompress silence that's all yeah. we want stillness and silence you know what i mean and 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 people don't know that and and they're triggering us and putting so much pressure on us to 
reoffend because they're making us feel like we don't have any other choice. After two weeks of coming home, been gone 13 years, uh, people looking at me, okay, you've been gone, you've been home a month now, it's time for you, a month. Like, you know what I've been going through for the last 13 years? You know, people don't yeah. get it. So this is what my foundation is. I created that. I started my podcast. It, it, it grew into a YouTube channel. You know what I mean? And I just found out that I had a niche for, for just like you and I are doing right here, man. Just, just connecting with people and extracting yeah. truth and education. And, and, and that's, I just evolved into that, man. So now I'm, I'm nationally known. You know what I mean? And, and people know me as someone that is a reliable source to get truth from. I'm not going to turn my channel into these, you know, white boys getting raped in prison and, and people being stabbed because that, that's, you know, that's, that's just not the truth. And it scares people and it just keeps stigma going, you know, so let's just see where it goes from here. Yeah, you know? yeah. No, definitely, man. That's definitely true. But I got an idea I want to share yeah. with you. And I want to share with you offline right, because, because I, I got people all over about, um, and it's about dealing with kids and it's about dealing with high yeah. school. So on the side, I want, to, I want to share with you and I want to really try to get a national movement on this because it's an empty space and it's an opportunity for kids yeah, that are in good. high school that are starting to take negative approach to life for us community leaders to step in and interact. So I'm going to share that with you and see what we can do on growing that. All right, that sounds good to me, man. You know, I, I love the kids. <clears throat> you know, um, I, I'm actually dealing with an 18-year-old kid that just came out of juvie, and uh, he's in the college program, my turn college program, and uh, I look at him like he's my son because, you know, he's too damn young, and he basically, same conversation, you know what I mean? But um, been there, done that, you know what I mean? We was, we was once kids. We know how they think. Because, you know, if we don't know how they think, then we would never connect it with ourselves and we're still not. You know what I mean? So we know how they think. And um, we we know how we should deliver a good message to them because if we don't, then we're really not connected to the youth. You know, and I think that's that's a big, important factor when we consider, you know, the, a lot of our elders. When our elders, when we was growing up, they are like, Man, I don't understand you guys. No, you just don't want to understand this and you don't understand yourself that much to connect with us, you know? And um, I think today, man, it's, it's, it's power unto us, man, that we could take our life experience and mold it into something, mold it into a market, you know? A lot of what I do is just like you. You know, I was fortunate in the last few months to find employment, you know, through inner city weightlifting. It's the shirt um, as a personal trainer. You know, they do community work. They're a nonprofit organization that chooses to get individuals out of the streets and into the gym as personal trainers or onto a career path. Um, and then I'm also community organizer for the campaign to end life without parole, hoping to give chance to uh, individuals that have been incarcerated, you know, an opportunity to receive parole at least after 25 years, you know, despite their crime, you know, cause like us, most of the people that are incarcerated for murder come from trauma and not just solely for the desire of wanting to kill somebody. And most serial killers don't get state time. They all get federal time anyway. You know what I'm saying? So that's a whole different legal battle. You know, what we're, what I'm trying to do is organize for, you know, uh, state sentencing, you know, um, instead of federal sentencing, you know. So I just want to see men come home, you know, men, good men and good women, 
that are locked up and change their lives just like us, but they just don't have the opportunity to be free and express and show the world that they are redeemable and can contribute back to doing what we are doing right now. You know, um, but yeah, any anything on any scale regarding the youth in high school, yeah, let's get let's get with it, man. Let's do something more about that, you know. Before, before we before we split, share some of um because you're you're on you're on parole for the rest of your life, right? Yeah. So yeah. share share a little bit of that. You know, share a little bit of what that means exactly for you to be out in a day to day environment, knowing, you know, or, or even thirty years from now, some some young twenty year old dickhead can just come in and just stop your life you know so share please you know i think that that, that's a good question right because a lot of people in society do not truly understand what uh a lifer is always up against you know first before you even get parole you have to do so much work to show the parole board that you're at least uh worthy to be eligible to see them you know um you have the right to waive your first parole hearing or see them, you know, and when you do go before them, you should be prepared. You know, what have you done while you was incarcerated? Can you show a paper trail of your rehabilitation? You know, um, because that's important. You know, you could show a paper trail of all your disciplinary tickets. Cause I had that, but can I counteract that with a paper trail of rehabilitation? I've had that. That's why I'm here. Right. But not only that, can you show remorse for your crime? You know, are you are you in touch with that? You know, are you in touch with your trauma in your life as well that possibly contributed to your crime, you know? So there's a lot that goes into that. You know, can you show to the parole board that you have community support, that your family's there, and that you have uh, some stability when you come home, employment when you come home? All these things have to be in line before you even are accepted to be released from prison. Um, once you're out, you know, you're out and they put you on an ankle monitor for a year, you know, as a lifer, that's the policy. Uh, they want to see where you're going. They want to make sure that you meet curfew because you've been locked up for a long time and, you know, prison trauma is real. You know, we all come out with PTSD when we are in there for a very long time, you know, and if you've seen some shit, you're going to come out feeling really fucked up. You know, uh, my, my super vigilance is at an all-time high, you know, and I could see things off the peripheral and just knock it out the air if it's too close, but I don't even have to look at it. And it's just, I'm just so hyper-vigilant, you know, and um, that's trauma, you know, and I, I don't mind that trauma. You know, being vigilant is really good because you see shit that common people don't see, you know, but there's other things, man, that I have to check myself on, like, yo, why did that person just cut me a line? You know what I mean? Like, you know what? Just leave that alone. It's not that serious, you know? Or getting bumped in the mall or something like that. It's not that serious, you know? Shit like that happens in society. It doesn't happen in prison. And if it does, then it's violent, you know? But, you know, being home on life parole, like, man, any could put a life or back behind the wall, you know? Just, you know, getting into an argument with a girlfriend and, that girlfriend saying, you know what, I'm going to call the police and put a restraining order on you. And it was just an argument, you know, maybe she just don't want to deal with your ass no more. And she's just being mad petty and just says, you know what, I'm going to put a restraining order just to be petty. And you didn't hear her. You were just like, you know what, I'm done with your ass. And she does that, that gets you locked up. (laughs) 
That's it. That's as simple as it gets. Any complaint by any person to the police or your PO can get you locked up for another year. The sad part is what happens in that one year of your incarceration, it could set you back five more years, 10 more years, you know what I mean? And you're not even that person anymore. You know, it's just circumstances now place you in a bad predicament all the time. So for a life on parole, we have to be the best citizen that there is. You know, um, better than most people that never possibly even committed a crime, but may have jaywalked, may have, you know, uh, picked up a traffic violation, but didn't really get caught for it, you know? We can't afford that, you know, because any interaction with law enforcement could put me back behind the wall. You know, um, anything that somebody has to say to law enforcement or my parole officer can put me back behind the wall. Um, you know, if if I fail to pay my parole dues, you know, I'm required to pay $75 a month just to be on parole. If I fail to pay, pay that so many times, could put me back in violation of my parole. You know, I'm free, but I'm not free. You know, the 13th Amendment has made that clear that anybody that commits a felony and is convicted and they are a slave. I've committed a felony. I've been convicted. I'm still on the streets, but I'm serving my time still because I'm serving life, you know? So therefore, under the dictation of law, I'm a free slave. That's all I am. You know, I'm a slave that's walking with a little bit of freedom, you know? So it's sad, but that's our reality of the constitution. That's the reality of society because that's how society's always going to judge us anyway. You know, you committed a felony, whether you're on parole or not, you're not a really true citizen. You know, we're second class, always will be, you know, and um, that, that's, that's the reality of being a life on parole, you know, could go back any day. Well, you know? playing, playing devil's advocate a little bit, you know, because you're going to have people that are going to watch this and they're going to say, but you know, you're, 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 a murderer or you're involved in murder, you know, and, and, and lives have been lost and they don't have the opportunity to make the, the gripes that you're making right now. So like, how do you, how do you Joe deal with the, the, you know, the, just the, the trauma that, that people aren't here anymore you know, and it, whether it is or, or it is or it isn't your responsibility, you know, you can share that, but lives are not here, you know, and, and what do you do and how do you cope with, with knowing that, that, you know? Yeah, you know, so when I committed my crime, I was heavily gang involved, you know, uh, you know, the victim you know, with all respect to the victim and his family, you know, he was and his friends were also getting involved. You know what I'm saying? Um, I didn't care about what I did at the time because of what my state of mind was like. But what did affect me at that moment was the fact that this man had children. He had two daughters, you know, uh, me growing up, I always told myself that I was never going to be like my father uh, with the inability to raise a child. That the moment that I did have a child, I was going to be man and man up and raise my child the best way I possibly can. I wasn't able to do that. I got locked up for taking a man's life 
uh, and taking him away from his children. You know, uh, I think that that's what affected me the most. As I grew up in prison and matured, then I started to look at the bigger picture and started to understand that although he was involved, it, he didn't deserve that. You know, um, nobody deserves to be murdered. You know, I don't know what could have happened that day. You know, the guys he was hanging out with also had guns and um, their intentions was to hurt me. I don't know if it was to kill me. I do not know because it never happened, you know, the, that way. You know, all I know is that I took a man's life and I took his life away from his family. You know, I have two daughters that he has and he never raised them. He never got to see them go through their tears of joy or tears of sadness because of a boy breaking their heart, you know, because that's what most boys will do when they're young, you know, and, you know, so I, I don't know, you know, that's what affected me the most. As I grew up, it started to bother me that I'm thinking about this man and I'm living my life and he's not, you know, I'm able to go to the store and buy me some fruit to enjoy fruit and he can't do that, you know whether he liked food or not, you know? The main thing so is, is, this, is just to hear your, you, you get to hear your, your, your child's voice. Yeah, you know, you know what I'm saying? And your like, child has somebody to speak to and, and console him, you know? He does, you know what I'm saying? And um, he doesn't, his child doesn't have that, you know? So it's, I don't take my life for granted. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of the stuff that I do now, it's focused on community work, is focused on building, is focused on trying to restore a lot of the trauma. You know, hurt people do hurt people. That's a fact, you know what I'm saying? But I'm not also trying to make an excuse for the fact that I took another person's life. You know what I mean? That I've damaged communities, that I've damaged families, you know? But what can I do to try to at least not, I know I can't redeem myself, but at least give me some redemption and show that I'm not taking my life in vain, nor am I taking his life in vain. Because we were both entangled in something and we didn't know better and he didn't deserve that, but nor did I deserve it. You know what I'm saying? I didn't deserve to be abused, but he didn't deserve to lose his life because of what was afflicted to me. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's something that I want to contribute back now to all the youngsters. Listen, man, don't do what I did because you could take another person's life that's suffering just as much as you, you know what I mean? And if we could try to figure out a way to become role models to these youngsters to curb that type of violence, then man, that's what I got to do because I think that would be the best way to apologize to him and to the family is to try to curb as much violence as possible and try to educate young men on how to be actual men and eliminate the toxicity on what we consider machismo, you know what I mean? We got we got we got to change the concept of what is machismo anyway. You know what I mean, and you know build it up Amen. in a positive way. So I think I think what I do now, man, is is just really more. Let me live in let me live an actual apology as opposed to just saying I'm sorry. So every day is I'm sorry, but I'm gonna show you sorry by my actions. You know, and that's one of the reasons why I also changed my life from being in a gang. You know, with you know this this this. There's no coming back from that, but at least I could try to make the rest of my life and positive impact on everybody else from what I've done, you know, and, uh, you know, keep living in the apology. You know, we got to live in the apology because sometimes people say sorry and it's too easy. But well, that's I mean, just it. Easy. I mean, you don't, 
you, you say sorry for, you know, uh, forgetting an item at the grocery store, but you don't say sorry yeah. for hurting somebody like, you know, yeah. your apology, like you say, comes through works. It's it's your apology comes from that person that you've hurt, seeing that you're making changes in order for that to never happen again. You know, and that's yeah. that's the apology, you know, is, is the changes. So, so one final question. What yeah. what do you say? to individuals that say you do not deserve to be off of parole and that you deserve to do life on parole. How, how do we, how do we attack that question? Well, you know, the, the reality is everybody's, everybody is okay with their opinion. You know, I'm okay with a person's opinion. You can have all your opinions, you know what I'm saying? And it's all right, but let's also bring in understanding, you know, Cycles of violence are real, you know, there's institutionalized violence and then there's personal violence, you know, and if we could confront those things as a society, then we can grow and we can actually have better understanding as to what are, what are the predicaments that ail us all. You know, I, I've taken a lot of classes and I could philosophize a lot of things. Sometimes people don't care about philosophy, nor do people care about the whole concept of institutionalized violence. They just care about the fact that you did something and you deserve what you get. Okay, understood. Until the shoe flips on the other hand, then people start to say, well, hold on now. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, let, let's be real about it. Nobody really cared about the crack epidemic, nor the heroin epidemic until it started to hit white suburbia, right? That's when people started to really talk about it. Like, oh my God, hold on. We need to really consider these things and figure out ways that we can actually fix this, right? So violence in a lot of communities are in the black and brown community, you know, but now let's say, you know, a lot more of white suburbia become gang affiliated. Now we need to figure out an alternative as to how we could deal with this type of crime because a lot of people don't want to see their children doing forever. You know what I mean? And I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but those are all hypotheticals. And it only matters when the shoe's on the other foot, you know? Yeah, but white suburbia has a gang. And, and this is what it people, people it, have it, it to does. understand that. There's no different. There is no difference between you being on the block and you running in an issue with somebody and you calling your homeboys for protection to come in and protect you and get you out of this situation than there is when white suburbia is sitting in their home and they have the opportunity to call the police knowing that the police is going to so, come down and 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 eliminate the situation and protect them you see what i'm saying and white suburbia yeah. does have a gang and it's the police the police is a gang Definitely. they even yeah. say it i dog yeah. i've never seen it a show Right. And they make fun of it and they make jokes of it on this this cop show, CBI, CIA, whatever these these cop shows are. I don't watch TV. So yeah. I don't know none of this crap. But I was walking by. My mom was watching and he even said, why are people joining your gang when they can join my gang? We, we have we're bigger, Definitely. we're more powerful and we carry guns. This is what they said on yeah. TV. And you, get away with it. Yeah. you know what I'm saying? So it's definitely Listen, Joe, man, this has been no, a real it, conversation. It's all, it's all go ahead, go ahead. Like it, 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 it's, it's all the same, right? But when it comes to do I deserve it, I, I'm not going to say I don't deserve it. You know what I'm saying? Nobody deserves to have their life taken away. You know what I'm saying? So whatever the repercussions for that type of action is, I mean, it's only appropriate 
in a very humanistic way. You know, I think that we have to take everything in it. We have to take everything into consideration. If we don't understand where people are coming from and what compelled them to commit the crime, then we can't judge them just solely on the crime. You know what I mean? They could have probably come from a dark spot. You know, mental health is really in America, and people are always saying now, you know, a lot of these schools that are getting shot up, oh, well, then that child had mental health issues. All right, how about mental health in black and brown communities? You know what I'm saying? When kids are growing up, and the reality is, like, I've been shot before, right? I've been in the drive-by. I've been shot. My son's mother, she was shot with me. Mm-hmm. I survived that, right? But in a lot of our communities, seeing people get shot is a reality, you know? And seeing people survive them shootings are realities. You know, when we go before the court of law, they say a reasonable, a reasonable person knows that if you pull out a gun and you shoot it, the person is going to be more than likely to die. Well, in my community... If you shoot somebody, they're more than likely to survive because there's more survivors of gun violence than there are actual victims. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, I mean, you know, murder victims, right? So it's like, for me, it's, and I'm not trying to water things down, but I'm just talking about the state of mind for individuals in our communities. It's more reasonable to see people survive from gunshot wounds or just being shot at than seeing more people die from guns, although a lot of people do die, right? And it's not right. But in that state of mind is a culture. And at the same time with that culture, it's a way of looking at the world where it's okay. And it's not okay. But when you have a child growing up in that kind of trauma, you know what I'm saying? You have to take into consideration, like, hold on, this child just grew up in a very violent, traumatic environment. This way of thinking is very different than a person that's never had that before and commits a murder crime, right? You go to a person that doesn't grow up in a violent community and murder somebody, all right, what the hell compelled you to kill that person? Because you didn't grow up that way. You know, you didn't see violence like that. All right, you might have been abused and hurt people do hurt people. Let's take that into consideration. But when you have a child that that's all they see is, gun violence, drug dealing, drug using, overdosing, people being shot at, people being uh, shot, people being murdered. Now that person has a different perception of the world and what their place is in it. They don't look at it the same way as a person has never been victimized or traumatized by all those type of things. You know, so all I say is like, yo, let's have understanding. A person deserves to be dealt with appropriately by law, but let's also use the common sense factor. You know, science has already said a person's brain doesn't develop until at least 25, 26. Then we also talked about trauma, that it takes a little bit longer because of trauma. It takes a little bit longer for a person to develop because of trauma, drug use, drug abuse, you know what I mean? The type of violence that you see in your life. So all those things hinder individuals' growth, you know what I mean? Science says that for criminal behavior, but science has already been there for the military because the military likes to recruit between the ages of 18 and 25 because they understand that the adolescent mind is not mature. And the military has been doing this for hundreds of years already because they know that this is the best grooming phase, right? Politicians also have it in their their policy books that you can't be a politician until a certain age because of 
brain maturity. And that's already been there, but it's just never been applied to criminal behavior until now. And the reason why that is, is because it's understanding that it is a health crisis. You know what I mean? That crime really is a health crisis. So we well, really need to really it's, have it's, a better understanding about it. It's like I say, and, 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 yeah. and, and, I'm, and I'm firm on it. You know, again, I, I do not negotiate with terrorists, Joe. I do not <laughs> negotiate with terrorists. And that's the bottom line. And, and when you look at the definition of terrorists, right, and you stop looking at who these people want you to look at, who they tell you the terrorists are, but you just start looking at what the word means and you start looking at our House of Representatives, our senators, yeah. things of that nature, how can you not label these same individuals terrorists? Because so, what you say, they've known. So how, how can you know that we've been, we've never been in the top 10 list as far as education as a nation? We've, no we've all of these issues, you keep getting up and saying every election, well, we know this has to be fixed, but it never gets fixed, right? What am I as a citizen supposed to stand back and believe that this is intentional? It has to be an agenda because you have Definitely. made an awareness to it and you're not doing nothing about it. Joe Biden no sat his bitch ass up on that stage and talked about this crime bill through his whole, yeah. his whole shit. And he hasn't done nothing about it. Talking about how sorry yeah. he is. Bill Clinton talking about how sorry he was about mandatory minimums. When it comes time to vote and it comes time for public perception, these, these, these bastards are sorry. But what have you done? Certainly. What have you done? It's absolutely nothing. Because a thousand people just went to prison yesterday yeah. on that crime bill. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Come on, man. Stop it, man. So I don't negotiate with terrorists. I don't tell my, my followers, my people to go stand out with picket signs and all this stuff because you're, you're standing in front of Amazon. You see what I'm saying? And just like I say, Jeff Bezos is going to look at you while you're telling him about his business model and he's going to look at you and he's going to give you that PC smile, you know, but the whole time in his head, he's like, man, get the hell away from me, you dickhead. Mm -hmm. I'm shooting myself to space. What the hell are you doing? You know what I mean? No doubt. Yeah. And it's the same with the government. The government's the same way. You know what I mean? What the hell are you talking about? You know, you know, the, the, the money that we make from you guys. Where do you think all these, these trillions and billions of dollars we're sending overseas? Where do you think that comes from to feed these fish farms over in India that we got to take care of that needs $3 trillion? That comes from prisons. Yeah. You know what I mean? We got to keep them prisons full. Y'all are, 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 are building America. Yeah. But now you have, you, like you say, because it doesn't involve anybody, you have these wives, you know, these husbands and such, children outstanding in 100-degree weather. 20 or 30 yep. of them because they couldn't, they begged a thousand people to come, but only 20 showed up, you know, and, and this is what we have. So what I say is this, we have to get into our communities. You know, we have to stop watching football, drinking beer, all of these distractions that they put in front of us, riding jet skis, going and, and spending all your money on just, we have to stop. We have to start volunteering oh, yeah. in our communities, get active, and start going in, in your local school. How can I help? Listen, I have afternoons off and I know that teachers are, don't want to sit in detention. I have a program. You know what I mean? It's a 12-step positive program that I can apply into the detentions. You know what I mean? Just yeah, get up, do something to change your communities. Get people yeah. to understand 
that, listen, when you're going out here and you're killing people, you're robbing people, you're burning down businesses in your community, you're rioting, you're looting, you're doing everything that they want you to do. You're a puppet. You're doing what they want. You may think that you have power and you may think that you're running things, but you're not. You're doing what they want you to do. They want you to do these things. They want you to tear down your community so they can make an example out of you and they can pass laws and they can take our rights away. Definitely. You know, and like I tell you, Joe, I tell them, listen, what's got me to where I was at my whole life is making emotional decisions. Seeing something (laughs) in front of me and me reacting to what I saw. And then later on, when the emotions subsided, me telling myself what a dumbass I was. You know, so reverse that. I tell the kids, just reverse it. When you want to react, just tell yourself, I'm in my emotions right now. Let me let me just calm down and let me think. And if you still think that you were tried or or whatever, then then those are your choices that you make. Yeah. You know what I mean? But don't make them emotionally. Know what it is that you're doing. Animals react. We're humans. We're thoughtful people. Uh We're not animals but they put us in a state of animalistic behavior. That's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, bro. That's what they do, Big Joe. Yeah, man. Man, it's been a great conversation, dog. Man, we've been going on an hour and a half now, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Friday. It's payday, man. We got to go get that money. It it, it is. Well, my payday was yesterday, you know what I mean? But, uh... So I'm good. I just got to go into work for a few hours and I'm done. You know what I mean? I ain't got no clients today. I'm just there to be there just in case, you know? So it's good. It's definitely a good day. And plus, uh, my son, my son is uh, performing tonight. Hopefully, provided it doesn't rain, we're going to be out there and he's going to he's gonna host his own event because this is his birthday party. And uh, he's gonna have, we're going to have some local artists out there at the Spicket Brewery in uh, Lawrence. And... Uh, I'm not going to be drinking, but I'm going to be over there supporting my little boy and watching him on stage and recording him and putting him all on my Facebook and my Instagram, man, so you can get some shine out there and some love, you know? Yeah, definitely. That's, that's a blessing, man. That's a blessing. Well, yeah. Good luck to him, man, and I hope he smashes. You know, you know that. You know that. He, he really does sound good, man. Like, he got this voice. It almost sounds like me or himself, you know what I mean? It's like, yo... Do your thing, man. You know? Okay. It's a real yeah, good thing to see. Listen, I'm glad. I'm glad he's got you with him, man. So Yeah, yeah, definitely. Go do your definitely. thing, man. And we'll connect again, partner. And then um yeah, yeah. we'll connect again and, and and get on some stuff, man. Yeah, just I'm, gonna, I'm up, gonna hit man. you on the side though on that idea that I definitely. got for real. Definitely so, let me know what's good with that. Definitely let me know what's good. Now I mean we'll do this again. All right, brother. Yeah, one, man. One. All right, one, man.